Well, thanks, brothers, for being willing to race through your food. Two reasons, really, why I'm here today. First of all, because I wanted to hear Jay Smith, and that's blown my mind away. Thank you, Jay, for all you said in the team. I thought it was a tonic, also a challenge. I guess we ought to pray for that you'll be kept safe when you go to America, and it's a great encouragement to know Harry and Larry are coming with you, and uh, I mean that quite seriously. Anyhow, thanks, thanks a million for the morning session. It's suddenly blown my mind away. Um, the second reason is simply because uh, Roger asked me, and uh, evangelists are going to be here, and I'm always thankful to be with evangelists and to do what I can to support. Uh, we're doing an overview of John, in case it, ha- it hadn't dawned on you. Um, I think overviews have become quite popular in the last five years or so. They, they didn't exist when I started out on preaching. I had to plead guilty that if there was a team of three uh, preaching together through a book, we would just start uh, without comparing notes. Uh, we didn't realize whether we were on the same page or not. I'm now a converted believer in an overview. I think you need to know where you're going before you start. And if a team is preaching through a book of the New Testament, for example, you ought not to start going not knowing where you're going like Abraham. You ought to have some idea of where you're going. And that's what an overview is about. Two preliminary comments on John. First from a boffin called Kirstenberger, who is a very learned commentator. He says, John's Gospel, together with the letter to the Romans, can justifiably be called the Mount Everest of New Testament theology. And certainly I think that's true for the uh, Christian evangelist. In my young days, uh, of course that's a long time ago, but this may be true of you as well, the evangelist looked mainly to the Apostle Paul. When I think of the memory verses I was given as a very young convert, they would be Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Ephesians 2.8-10, that kind of thing. Uh, And you expected people, if they loved the gospel of grace, to be preaching from Romans or Ephesians or whatever. Uh, I think there is a better balance now. We ought to be preaching the gospel of grace just as much from the gospels as from the Apostle Paul. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, comes from John chapter 1, and John is certainly a gospel to be preached. A learned theologian from my university says that John's gospel answers the question, what must I do to be saved? It's quite interesting, isn't it, what these men say in their books. When I was a student at that university, not a single senior member of faculty stood behind the Christian Union, Not a single member of the theological faculty stood behind the Christian Union, and yet here was a man who actually believed that this gospel had to do with being saved. I remember being asked to lead a mission at that university. I was asked to to meet the theological staff before I started. I didn't want to do so, but I did as a matter of courtesy. And with with no exception at all, they sat around at coffee time and were hostile which is very sad. So uh, I do believe this is an evangelistic gospel, and I think that Carson is right, and that John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which we might possibly look at just as a text before we start, is what the gospel of John is about. And in fact, John 20, 30 and 31 tells you what the evangelist should be preaching about 
anyhow, but certainly if he's preaching on John's Gospel. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Three indispensable themes for the uh, evangelist are here. One, the person of Christ. Uh, John's gospel is full of Christ, isn't it? Uh, I haven't time to go into all the things like the I am. So I, all I can remember is that when I first went to a kid's camp and heard the gospel for the first time, what was at the center of the talks was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he surely is at the center of John's gospel and ought to be at the center of all evangelism. Chapter 1, verse 14, John says, We beheld his glory. And in a sense, evangelistic preaching is presenting the glory of Christ to people today, isn't it? That is what John is out to do. That is what all evangelists ought to do, to point to Christ and his glory. Secondly, belief and unbelief. Uh, it's remarkable how much of this there is in John's Gospel. I think we ought to preach about it. I'm coming on to that later. John 3, 16, 18. It's all about believing. Whoever believes will have eternal life and not perish. Merrill Tenney, who's written a learned commentary on John, calls it the Gospel of Belief. And every chapter has something about belief and unbelief and the reasons for both. I think that's a theme that the evangelist ought to be talking about. And then life, of course, eternal life, which is the life of the age to come. John is absolutely full of that. John 10.10, 10, I come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, the life. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, it was through the word life that I came into John's Gospel in the first place about four months ago. I wanted to make a fresh study really for my own nourishment, but I hope it will be a nourishment for other people as well. I'm getting very old, and I find that getting into packages and tins today is very difficult. In fact, when I'm struggling with them, I think of the thousands of little old ladies in this country struggling to get into packages and tins, because they're all so tightly made nowadays. Well, I was very fortunate in the way that I came into John's Gospel. I decided to take a theme, and as it happened, I took the theme of life. And I soon discovered that there are two aspects of life in John's Gospel, present and future. Let's look at future first. By the way, please interrupt if you want to. I'm going to go at a fairly good pace because of time, but I don't mind being interrupted if I'm not making myself clear or if I'm talking heresy, stand up and say so. So we look first of all at future, chapter 20. As you know, chapter 20 is eyewitness stuff. The whole of John's Gospel is eyewitness stuff. If by any chance uh, you uh, had to do theological training and had to write essays on... Uh, well, no, we'll forget that. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, there's a thing called form criticism, and I suppose theological students have spent about 80 years writing essays on form criticism. And now Richard Borkham, who's a fine evangelical theologian, tells us it can be abandoned altogether. Form criticism came into existence because people ceased to believe in the eyewitness of the Gospels. I won't explain all that because it's all a lot of rubbish, really. <laughs> but uh, it's essential to understand that John's Gospel is eyewitness. It is first-hand evidence. And you get that in chapter 20. Verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside. He saw and believed. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Verse 20, 
then were the disciples overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And of course, verse 24, I won't read it all as I was going to, but it's so famous, isn't it? Unless I jolly well see the wounds, put my hand into them, I'm not going to believe. Because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, but believed. Now, the great question is this, isn't it? What did they see? And the easy answer is that they saw their much-loved master alive again. But actually, what they saw was far, far more than that. What they saw was Jesus in his resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15, of course, tells us something about the glory of the resurrection body that we are going to have. And they saw that day, that first Easter day, Jesus in his resurrection body. That is, uh, as he lives and we will live through all eternity. In other words, they had a glimpse of the new world order. Uh, You may have seen the obituary of Bishop Jenkins of Durham, who died the other day. He made a bit of a stir by saying that the bones of Jesus are in the dust of Palestine. Uh, I was going to say he made a stir. I don't honestly think it made much of a stir. Uh, People are used to bishops who don't believe anything, and um, there's not much shock in that. Although, do you remember that there was damage to York Minster? Do you remember that? And people said this was due to the fact that some bishop had come out saying he didn't believe anything. I don't think actually the damage to York Minster had anything to do with that. I'm sure that God uh, doesn't worry either about York Minster particularly, or certainly about unbelieving bishops. I remember being talking to the late John Stott at that moment, and he looked at me very sorrowfully, and I can actually remember the words he said to me. He said, Dick, what he is really denying is not so much the resurrection as the new creation. That, I think, is a very, very sound and important statement. What you're reading about in John 20 is the new creation, the future life, eternal life, which means the age to come. And it is used in exactly the same way in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark 10, verse 30, if you're you're wanting notes, where eternal life is defined as the life of the age to come. So that's what life means in John's Gospel. It means the life of the world to come. What then a present life in John's Gospel? Well, a classic verse of that is chapter 5, verse 24. And if you have a Bible or whatever you're looking at, I would like you to look at that because it is such a magnificent statement of what the Boffins call realized eschatology, that is, the future being anticipated here and now in this life. Chapter 5, verse 24, Very truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, that is, has the life of the age to come, will not be judged, has escaped judgment, but has crossed over from death to life. Now that actually is a statement, isn't it, of justification by faith. We'll be coming to that back that in a moment. I'm not a theological scholar or historian of scholars, but I am aware of the fact that the major scholars in the 1930s studying John's Gospel got very excited about this, what they call, realized eschatology. To the extent that they said, there's no future life in John's Gospel. Jesus is not coming back again, despite many verses like chapter 6, verse 39 and so on. It's all here and now. And especially a man called C.H. Dodd wrote a large and very learned book 
saying that John's Gospel was all about the future being anticipated in the here and now. Now you might say, does that matter to straws? What rather heretical theologians wrote and said in the 1930s? And the answer is that I'm afraid it does matter. Because in the end, whether we like it or not, these things filter through. As a consequence of what those liberal theologians were saying in the 1930s and 40s, it has in fact come filtering through even into the soundest evangelical circles. So that now a realized eschatology, life here and now, is the major thing throughout the world in most evangelistic preaching that is not squarely based on scripture. Let me give you three examples. One, the prosperity gospel. It's all about the here and now. Secondly, the healing gospel. A friend of mine whose wife died, he's now living with his daughter, goes to the local church, the only one nearby, and the man is undoubtedly a converted man. I don't think he knows a great deal, but his whole message is about healing, physical healing, here and now, as being the real evidence of God's love for you. And thirdly, of course, and uh, I think there's perhaps less of this in this country now, but it's still rampant throughout the world, the holiness gospel of which the charismatic movement is a first cousin. Now, those are being preached all over the world, Latin America, Africa. Some of these are the major gospel being preached, and they're all over-realized eschatology. It all comes from an emphasis that was an over-emphasis and got the whole thing out of kilter. Let me pause for a moment to define life when I was a young Christian in a Youth for Christ rally or whatever like that that you went to. The kind of title, I can remember the title of a wonderful youth rallies that were run by a chap called Lindsay Glegg. Anybody remember Lindsay Glegg? And they had a great banner, Life for the Capital L. Now, I fully understand that. I think it's uh, a reasonable thing to do because so many young people think that life, if you're a Christian, is going to be dreary and it's all a matter of saying no and going to church and things like that, which are unthinkable. And so the evangelists in those days would talk of life in those positive ways, that if you become a Christian, it's a good life, you'll have a happy life, and so on and so forth. But it is important, isn't it, to say that life is actually John's word for salvation. It's a deliverance word. Therefore, what does it really mean in John's Gospel? It's not, it's not about a lifestyle. It's about deliverance from death. I mean, chapter 11, verse 25 is sufficient to prove that, isn't it, alone, without any other verse. It's a matter of being saved from perishing from hell. So it's very important to define our words. This great word life is John's word for salvation. It's one of the great themes of the Gospel, and it's about deliverance from death here and in the future, of course. John's message, then, is a message of life from the dead. It's anticipated now, by grace are we saved, but it will become fully ours on the, at the last day. In fact, we don't really fully understand what we are saved from and won't until that day, when we shall realize what a great salvation this really is. 
Now, with this in mind, I want to go back to the beginning. We ought to have started at the beginning anyhow. Well, going back to the beginning, don't get too disheartened. We're not going to get to the end anyhow this afternoon, but at least we're going to go back to the beginning. Look at verses 1 to 5. They're very familiar, aren't they? But I wonder if you see their extraordinary significance. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So the first three verses tell us that Jesus, the Word, was the agent through which Almighty God made the universe. Would that people like David Attenborough understood that. Alas, they're in great ignorance, aren't they, as they show us this wonderful world in which we live. So verses 1 to 3 tell us that all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. I even know a man who was a Jehovah's Witness who was converted through that verse. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that the word, Jesus, was the agent through whom God saves the world. In him was life, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So right at the beginning of John's Gospel, there is an announcement as to what this word, this Lord Jesus, this, this God, this Savior, this King, this powerful one, what he, was, what he was responsible for, he was responsible for the creation of the world and for the salvation of the world. And I think the comparison is intentional. What it means is that the very same power and wisdom that made this world and universe in which we live is it is at work and necessary to be at work in order to save the world. The sovereignty of Jesus is one of the great themes of John's Gospel. And indeed it has to be if he's going to do this. And you get this extraordinary phrase in chapter 317 and 1247. Chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Isn't that an extraordinary phrase? It doesn't mean universalism. We'll try and find out later what it does mean. But then let's underplay that. The same Lord who made the world has been sent into the world to save the world. This word world comes again and again. God so loved the world. Chapter 12, verse 47. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. As I say, that's not universalism. I suppose there are two extremes in this, aren't there? Uh, some of the great old Princeton theologians of the 19th century believed that more than half the world, half the population, half the people that ever lived would be saved. I must say, I don't know that I could believe that. Seems seems too good to be true. But on the other hand, you have the little flock mentality, which is only me and Mrs. Jones and Bill are going to be saved. Um, when I was first converted... When I was saved, I was, our family lived in East Sussex. East Sussex is very much... Uh, reform territory like East Suffolk in the 19th century 
lots of little tiny chapels and lots of little flock attitude that, well, here we are, we're safe, but the whole world can go hang. Now, that's unkind, of course, but you know the attitude. And I do think we need shaking up, and that John's Gospel does a certain shake me up with this great phrase that Jesus came to save the world. And this world, of course, is the world that hates God, chapter 15, verse 8. Nevertheless, and we owe this to Don Carson, I think, in his writings, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. Did you realize that? It actually says it. Now, that is a very, very startling thing to say. And our more ultra-reformed brethren won't accept it. And you can understand why. Throughout John's Gospel, God's love is always for his Son. The Father loves the Son. And for his own, that is, the elect. Only in John 3.16 is God's love for the world. And therefore it has been the habit amongst the more reformed Christians to say that that must fit in with the other and must mean, therefore, God so loved the elect. And we owe it to Don Carson, I think, to rescue us from that misunderstanding. Unless God so loved the world, there'd be no Christ visiting this world, no salvation, no life eternal, no hope, no anything. Everything that we've been talking about today, every hope of a Christian, every hope of a Muslim confronted with the gospel depends upon this one fact, that God so loved the world. That's one of the great contributions of John's gospel. Don't let's rub it out. Now, make no doubt, no mistake in your mind that if he is to save the world, he must be an all-powerful king. John undoubtedly has uh, material, sources, which the other gospel writers did not have. He therefore is saying some things which the other gospel writers do not say uh, so strongly. And one of them is that Jesus is an all-powerful king, rather like the pattern of Psalm 2. So, for example, and we won't have time to get to this, if you were to read through chapters 18 and 19 of John tonight, which is John's story of the cross, you would find that the picture, the balance, is different from the synoptics in as much as John puts the focus of his life on the sovereignty of Christ. He walks into the garden where Judas is and the soldiers fall in front of him. You have this long trial with Pilate and it's quite clear that it's Jesus who's trying Pilate, not the other way around. You then come to the crucifixion and he is master of the whole situation and his final word is a word of victory. It is finished. He's come to do a particular work to accomplish the will of his Father. And on the cross, with a loud voice, he says, I have accomplished the work. That's the picture of Jesus you get in John's Gospel. He is a sovereign Lord. Nothing can stand in his way. If he has come to save the world, he will do just that, according to his purposes. Quite encouraging to know that. Now let's look at chapter 1. Alas, we don't seem to have got much further than chapter 1. 
it's customary, I think, to look at chapter 1, 1 to 18 as the prologue. I want to suggest to you that the whole of chapter 1 is introduction. And verses 6 to 13, if you will glance at it, and verses 14 to 18 are two sections of comparable length. By the way, I've discovered that John is very neat and he loves to write in an orderly way. And it's quite worthwhile, therefore, looking at his patterns and his sections and his proportions. In verses 16 to, verses 6 to 13, we get the witness of John. Now, when talking to you, I feel bold to say what I think this means, because you're well able to stand up and say, no, you're wrong. Nearly all the commentators say that verse 6 to 13 is the witness of John the Baptist. But I want to say it's much bigger than that. It's the witness of Old Testament prophecy. John is the last and the greatest of the prophets, and he stands in John's Gospel as representing the voice of prophecy, the prophetic word. And so what he is saying is, I am not the light, verse 8. And in saying that, what John, as the voice of prophecy, is saying is Judaism is not God's last word. Now that's very, a very, very important message. The original audience for John's Gospel, probably most of the early readers, were Hellenistic Jews, that is, Jews living in the Roman Empire. Almost certainly the majority of his first readers were people who had it ingrained in them, just as Orthodox Jews have today, that Judaism is God's last word for the world. And what you get at the beginning of John's Gospel is very fascinating, both in chapter 1 and chapter 3, that John continually keeps saying, I am not, I am not, I am not, I am not Elijah, I am not the, the prophet. Uh, I am a voice in the wilderness pointing to someone who's greater than me. So verses 6 to 13 are the witness of prophecy to the one who is to come. And verses 14 to 18 are the witness of the disciple apostles, of course, who saw, we have seen the glory of the one and only Son. Now, what John is doing in that little prologue is, is normal for the New Testament. That is to say, I'm about to tell you what Christianity is, so I think it's only right to tell you what my foundations are. My foundations are the prophets and the apostles. If you just turn quickly, I have got no other cross-references today, certainly not with the time at our disposal. If you turn to 2 Peter, you get an absolutely classic statement of the same thing. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to the end of the chapter. In verse 16 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we, that is the apostles, told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice. Notice, we saw... And we heard. That is to say, we are telling you history, we're telling you what happened, and B, we're telling you what it meant. When they say that they heard, as well as what they saw, they're telling you that their interpretation of what they saw is the truth. 
Then in verse 19, we have the prophetic message, that is the Old Testament, as something completely reliable, and you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns, that is the coming of the Saviour, and the morning star rises in your hearts, and you have an experience of the Saviour. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation. A lot of uh, dogs' breakfasts and commentaries over there, but it's really very straightforward, isn't it? What it is saying is that the prophet did not interpret what was happening in his own terms. So that Isaiah would come down to breakfast, and there was Maha Shalal Hashbash, his son, just about to go off to school on his bike, and the prophetess, as he calls his wife, always love that, don't you? The prophetess was, was making fried eggs or something on the, on the oven. And Isaiah did not say to his son, Baz, I've suddenly realized, of course, that the ninth century prophets got this all wrong. And I'm going to write a book to put it right. Which is what, of course, theological scholars have been doing for the last hundred years. You make your name and your income by showing that the previous generation got it all wrong. So what this verse is saying is that Isaiah did not do that. That he did not feel that he himself had a greater insight, but that God by the Holy Spirit had taught him. It was not his interpretation. This is so important, isn't it? Because when we start preaching, sooner or later some wag will come up to us and say, well, that's just your interpretation, Dick, won't they? And they have every right to say that because all sorts of interpretations are going around, aren't they? But we believe, as Jim Packer has said, that the Bible is an interpretation. That the Bible is not a book saying to you, the pastor, the evangelist, will you please interpret me? The Bible is an interpretation. The interpretation the prophets and the apostles have made of what they saw and heard. So we're not asked to interpret the Bible in that fundamental sense, but to pass on the testimony of John and the testimony of the apostles. Now that the whole chapter is an outworking of this, you can see, actually, if you then follow. What is John's testimony? What is the testimony of prophecy? We'll look at verse 19 through to verse 34. We can't read it in all, but it's quite plain. Let's pick out the two things that he says he's pointing to. Verse 29, look, the Lamb of God who takes the sin away the sin of the world. So, so, what, so John's testimony is that the Jesus who is coming is the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sin of the world. And in verse 33, the man on whom you see the Spirit come is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that a wonderful summary? The word of prophecy, John the representing the word of prophecy, the Old Testament says, the coming one is going to remove the sin of the world and baptize you in the Spirit. He's going to take away your guilt and he's going to give you the new life. Just some, quite simple as that. Well, this isn't simple, of course, but you understand what I mean. It's a very clear gospel message. The taking away of sin and guilt, the gift of the new life in the Spirit. That is what the Old Testament points to. And by the way, notice his negative. When the TV uh, interviewers come, who are you, why are you making such a fuss, what are you talking about, his answer is, I am not. It's the same message. It's a message to the Jews of the dispersion. Prophecy is not the final word. It points forward to one who's going to come.
Uh, by the way, I can't tell you how important the negative is in John's Gospel. And to tell you the bad news, that if you're going to be an evangelist, which many of you have been for many years, you can't avoid the negative. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the positive. No one comes to the Father but me. That's the negative. John 14.6b interprets John 14.6a. I heard a Christian on radio give three talks on John 14.6a. I am the way, truth, the life. We had one on way, one on truth, one on life. I waited for the last talk with the second half and it never came. John 14.6a without John 14.6b is not biblical Christianity. 14.6b interprets 14.6a. It means there's no other way, there's no other truth, and there's no other life. So, I can say that marriage is between a man and a woman, and I may well be applauded for saying that. But if I say it is not between a man and a man, or between a woman and a woman, I will not be applauded. But if I don't say the negative, I'm not saying the positive. And that's why, of course, the evangelist and the Christian preacher cannot help but be um, unpopular today. But if you take John's Gospel seriously, you will always be prepared to say the negative with the positive. Because he does so all the time. It's the only way. It's, it's what we're doing in ordinary life all the time. But can you tell me the way? Yes, you go up there, you turn left at the third, not at the second. We're doing it all the time, aren't we? And John does that all the time. No, no, not that way. No, no, not that way. This way. That's the voice of prophecy. Now, what is the voice of the disciple apostles? Well, that is from verse 35 to the end, similar in length to the word of prophecy. And we have three statements. First of all, Andrew's uh, confession and testimony. Verse 41, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And then Philip's testimony, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the Law and the Prophets. And then Nathaniel's testimony, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. A very fine definition on Israel in John's Gospel is worth writing down. For John, Israel is not the Jewish nation, but the new humanity, reborn in Christ, the community of those who are of the truth and of whom Christ is king. I just say it again because I think it's so good. He differentiates between the Jews and Israel. For him, Israel is the new community around Jesus Christ. And you remember John 15:1, I am the vine. Now as I am Israel. It's not so much that we are Israel, but that he is Israel and we are joined to him. I just quote it again in case you find it helpful. For John, Israel is not the Jewish nation, but the new humanity, reborn in Christ, the community of those who are of the truth and of whom Christ is king. Now let's look at a couple of blocks of material. There won't be time to do more than that. But first of all, chapters 2 to 4. I think we are in an immensely privileged generation of Bible teachers because we have such wonderful commentaries which simply weren't available when I kicked off in the 1950s. 
It's true that there was Calvin is still one of the best commentators. But by and large, we had mostly sentimental stuff in the evangelical field. And now we do have giants, don't we, everywhere. In fact, in some ways, there are too many commentaries coming out. There are too many Christian books, aren't there? They get chased off the Christian bookstore before before they've been there six months. But all the modern, good, Bible-believing commentators, and you will know who they are, seem to me to have got chapters two to four right. They say it is a, a section on its own. It's within two, uh, two marks of Ken of Galilee, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 46. And the theme of chapters 2 to 4 is the replacement of the old order by the new. I quote, The sign of the changing of water into wine displays before the public ministry of Jesus is due to begin the meaning of that ministry, which is the supersession of the old covenant by the new. So this is how John starts his book. He's given you an introduction by saying, you can believe me because I'm founding all I say upon the prophets and the apostles. And then his first section is, I want to tell you that the old order has gone. Well, isn't that exactly what you'd expect? Since he is writing to Jews. I know people feel that John's gospel is anti-Semitic, but none of these early Christians, they were all Jews, and they all loved their own people, didn't they? Just like Paul. Um, I'm sure John was just like Paul. You know, Paul rushes. He knows God has called him to the Gentile world, and he can't stop going to the synagogue, can he? And the next moment you find him flying out of the window, sitting on the pavement and saying, well, this must mean I've got to go to the Gentiles. But he can't stop going to the Jews. He goes to the synagogue. And the next time he goes to, five minutes later, out of the window he comes, sits down on the pavement, scratches his head and says, well, it must mean I've got to go to the Gentiles. So these men loved their own race, as you know from Romans. They are not anti-Semitic uh, in any way, but they are telling us in the beginning, or rather John is telling us, that the old has gone the new is here, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Look at the four major stories. First, the wedding. What is the wedding about? It's about the replacement of law by grace. Chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is the second story about? It's about the cleansing of the temple. And what did they discover? They discover verse 20 of chapter 2, the temple he had spoken about was his body. I mean, it's, a, it's an astonishing piece of symbolism. The temple is destroyed. You don't meet God by going into a building any longer. Where do you meet God? You meet God in the body of Christ. And what is the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 3, the temple of God is his people. So God has replaced the temple throughout the world with the body of Christ. And if I want to meet God and his people, where two or three are met together, I don't necessarily have to go to a particular sacred building any longer. I go where God's people are met, and that's where I find him, where God lives amongst his people. Tremendously important truth, that, isn't it? Because we're not going to be spending eternity on clouds, playing harps, thankfully. 
God is coming down to us. The new Jerusalem comes down to earth, to the new heavens and the new earth, and God dwells with his people. Where would you expect God to dwell? Except amongst his redeemed people. So the first story is the change from law to grace. The second is a new temple instead of the old temple, a new center where you go to meet with God. Thirdly, the new birth, of course. I quote, Here flesh and spirit are the human and divine, or the natural and the supernatural orders of existence. Birth is a feature of both. The two orders must not be confused. One's birth within the natural order cannot confer spiritual status. To be born a Jew does not exempt a man from the new uh, spiritual birth. So what does John choose? (laughs) The teacher in Israel, the distinguished Jew. If he's got to be born again, then nobody's exempt. And chapter 4, of course, the new harvest field. Instead of being Jerusalem or Gerizim, the harvest field is as big as the whole world. Chapter 4, verse 42. Now, I could go into all those four stories and the little fifth story there, but I won't now because of time. But I think it's quite clear that those four chapters are spelling out the end of the old order and the beginning of the new, and they're doing it in astonishingly radical terms. You may say, well, if he's saying that to Jews, how do we apply that today? Well, of course, actually, we apply it, don't we, to religion. Because all people are basically religious, or rather think they know what religion is about. And what is religion about? First, it's about law-keeping throughout the world. Secondly, it's about temple activity. Thirdly, it's about human inheritance. I'm born a Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Church of England. Fourthly, it's about ancestral worship patterns that I adhere to. So actually what John is telling us in chapters 2 to 4 is that religion is being replaced by the new world. Religion is... I can't read my writing, so let's forget it. Just to take uh, temple activity, it's so, it's so embedded, isn't it? When I first went to St. Helens uh, and started the lunch hour service, the 1st August, it's a ridiculous story, but it always makes people smile. I got lots of postcards from people on holiday you know, saying, uh, wish you were here with us. And the postcard was always of a church. <laughs> so when we got back in September and the people came again, I said, thank you very much for your postcards, but actually I'm not very interested in church buildings. I suppose that's not absolutely true. I mean, I can appreciate a cathedral or a good building like anybody else. But I thought, yes, you associate me because I'm uh, an ordained minister with a building and all I'm doing in that building. Uh, Which is a complete misunderstanding, isn't it? As Phil Jensen has said, the building is only a rain shelter. There's no other purpose in it apart from that. Uh, again, I mean, a silly story, but it's so very true that a much older generation, you know, who all thought they understood, 
My dear, this is many, many years ago, my dear old mother who was as deaf as a post was having tea with another old girl who was as deaf as a post. You know, and they were eating tiny little bits of cake together. There must have been a third person there, otherwise I wouldn't know this story. And the other old duck, aged about 90, said to my mother, what does Dick do all day? My mother obviously didn't hear it and said nothing. And this old duck answered her own question. I suppose he shows people around his church. <laughs> now, isn't that an extraordinary statement? <laughs> John says that is what is being superseded, and it was superseded 2,000 years ago. <coughs> Law, buildings, birth, inheritance, Ancestral whatnots. Oh, here's my definition of religion. Well, it's not mine. It's a famous re re definition. Religion is human piety, human self-justification, and human conjecture, as opposed to faith, which is the gift of God. In fact, one of the burdens we need to be saved from is religion, isn't it? We'll move on now quickly, if we may. I shall know to stop if I see you going to sleep, so you know how to stop me. We'll look now just for a moment at the block, verses 5 to 11. I think it's a very important block. and I've only recently come to terms with fully understanding its nature. Just before we do that, a word about these discourses. What are we to make about a discourse like chapter 3? Because clearly the discourses in John's Gospel are quite different from those in the Matthew, Mark and Luke. They're very long. They're usually attached to a miracle or a sign. And we're not quite sure who's speaking. So that Ryle in his expository readings gets very worked up in chapter 3 as to whether Jesus is still speaking in verse 16 or not. And you get the production of the Red Letter Bible. Now, the answer to that, I think, in fact, I'm sure, but I don't think it's as clearly understood by people as it ought to be. The answer to that is chapter 16, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He's speaking to the apostles, not to us. Sure you know that. He will not speak on his own. He has no separate message. There's no gospel of the Holy Spirit. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, not himself, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that the Father belongs to the Father is mine, so the Spirit will receive from me and make it known to you. Now, he's talking to the apostles throughout chapters 14 to 16. Their first reference is to the apostles, not to us. And he's saying that the Father has put all into the Son, the incarnate Son, so just imagine for that for a moment. The Father has put all the glory of the Father into the incarnate Son. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to take of that treasure and make it clear to the apostles. That's the order of events. 
God puts all his glory, for no, for no one has ever seen God, so he puts it in the word made flesh, his glory. The uh, Spirit is then sent to take that treasure which is in the word made flesh. We're not Docetists. We believe in a real man, God-man, and make that real, not to us, but to the apostles. Because that's just so important, would you turn it? I, I, I told a lie just now, I'd forgotten we were going to have a second cross-reference. Preachers are very unreliable on this, aren't they? It's when they say, finally, you know, it never is. Uh, just do please turn on your machine or in your Bible to 1 John, because this is just so important. Liberals are fattened on John 16 as though the Spirit is going to lead us to further truth. That is not the case in John's Gospel. The Spirit has nothing new to say. His ministry is to take of the unsearchable riches of Christ and to teach that to the apostles who teach that to the church. Look at 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard... You never heard it, they heard it, which we have seen with our eyes, you never saw it, I never saw it, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, yes, we actually touched the risen, resurrected body. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. We're telling you what we saw and heard and touched. You can't possibly have done any of that. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified we proclaim to you the eternal life which was of the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. You can't say it too often. So that you may have what? So that you may have fellowship with us, the apostles. And our fellowship, our apostolic fellowship, is with the Father and the Son. The only way in which we come into fellowship with the Father and the Son, which is what Christian living is, is through the apostles who saw, heard, and touched. So they are quite distinct. And what you have in John is the apostolic testimony. So that whether, in fact, it seems to be the words of Jesus in John 3 or seems to be the words of the apostle doesn't matter a bit because they're both God's word and the responsibility for their total accuracy is God the Holy Spirit. Now, that truth is understood throughout the history of the church, and it, of course, is corrupted. So the apostles become the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, or the leaders of the exclusive brethren, or the leaders of this particular church, or what? Isn't that right? So you've got that grotesque church in Gordon Square, which was the Irvingite church, do you remember? Where they had their apostles. And I remember the trustee of that church coming to me and saying, all the apostles have died, therefore our church has died. Well, of course, if apostles die, the church dies. Well, that's not quite right, is it? The apostles don't die because we have their testimony. We believe that the church is founded on the apostles, and the apostles' testimony is here. The word of prophecy in the Old Testament, the word of the disciples, apostles in the New Testament. And that the only apostolic church is that which is constantly going back to this testimony. But you can see how that was corrupted in history, can't you? And becomes our lot. Now what is so important here, I think, and I was trying to get this clear in my own head,
is that what you have in John 5 to 11 are seven perfect examples of an evangelistic sermon, a pattern, a perfect pattern. And what is so interesting is that he's not interested in, although it is the same story, of course, and the same Jesus, the same history, he's not really interested in the um, the day. So, beginning of chapter 5, sometimes later. Beginning of chapter 6, sometime after this. The beginning of chapter 7, just after this. Very vague. So, what he's done, he's written down seven major stories and the discourses around them as patterns of evangelistic preaching. (laughs) We all know that evangelistic preaching without stories is usually pretty dull, isn't it? Which is sometimes you get to the stage where the evangelistic sermon is all stories about Mrs. Bill or whatever it may be. The classic form of this is in John's Gospel. The story is Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the blind man of chapter 9, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, chapter chapter 11. And around the story is the discourse. Now, I do not mean by that that every time you preach an evangelistic sermon, you have to preach an immense teaching sermon on one of the chapters of John. But I do think that they leave the church an authentic pattern of what evangelism means. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I've got a, a workshop with, for three mornings with ministers in Glasgow in June. Uh, so it's just a tiny little workshop, and I usually lead a workshop each year. The first morning, I'm going to give them an overview, John, and then I'm going to write to them before the people who come to the workshop and say, will you prepare for the next two mornings <laughs> expositions of John either 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11? in order to give us an authentic apostolic pattern of evangelistic preaching. Because if we continually do that, going back and back and back, we shall we shall stay on track. I mean, you've all pl- played whispers with your children at Christmas, haven't you? You send a message down the line, Aunt Jane is coming to tea tomorrow, and it gets repeated by whispers through the family, doesn't it? And at the other end, it comes out, we're having sandwiches for tea tomorrow, or something quite different. That's the problem, isn't it, with the church, is that the message gets more and more diluted, and things like hell, for example, just get left out. So, John's Gospel gives us these seven chapters with seven wonderful patterns. Um, Chapter 5 we saw just now, is an extraordinary exposition of justification before, before you ever read Romans 5 to 8. I mean, you know, it's amazing that people can think that if you want no condemnation, you have to, no condemnation, you have to go to Romans 8. What about John 3? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because he is not believed. That's no condemnation. There it is in John. John is very Pauline. And I know the theologians say he's not, but he is. Of course he is. He's the same generation. They're preaching the same gospel. 
So, I mean, John, I'm looking forward to one of these men in Glasgow, and I want to do this myself. I haven't, I haven't had time to do them as I would like. But, I mean, John 11 is a wonderful gospel chapter, isn't it? Our brother is very sick. Will you please come? And he doesn't. All he has to do is to pack his bag and go. And we're told he delays. And when he gets there, she says, well, if you'd come, he wouldn't have died. That's very relevant, isn't it? Oh, we've just gone through the agony in the last uh, month of the death of a 16-year-old boy who is the grandson of Phil Jensen. Those of you who know Phil and Helen will know they've gone through a terrible time, really. Uh, Nathan was a lovely Christian boy and died of a brain tumour. And, of course, their family and all their friends have been praying for Nathan for 12 months. And did Jesus come? No, he didn't. Never turned up. It's John 11, isn't it? And uh, so we say, well, if you'd been here, if you'd answered prayer, Nathan wouldn't have died. And so he says, well, you know that he'll rise on the last day. And so we're all Orthodox Christians. They say, yes, Lord, we believe that uh, you believe he's going to rise on the last day because you're the Lord. And then he gives you this extraordinary answer. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives believing in me will never die. It's the same message as John chapter 4. Your son lives. It's a very important message, isn't it? Very important message for Phil and Helen and their daughter and son-in-law and the other kids. Not to keep thinking of Nathan as he was at school and in the holidays, but to think of him as he is today. Your son is alive. That's the New Testament message. That's John 11. It's an evangelistic sermon. But if I don't go back to these and check what I'm preaching, check the balance of what I'm saying, check the way in which I approach these great issues, I may find that I'm not preaching as authentic gospel as I, as I ought. Roger, I think I'm going to stop there. There's so much, there's far too much to say.